it started me off on, you know, four decades almost of just loving. I loved working with different people, different cultures, different situations and, and understanding people and helping to make people successful. And, and by the way, back to the, how are you effective as a team? And I think, I think it's one of the reasons why I did well at HP in a matrix where in order to get things done in a company of 330,000 people, you need to move mountains that don't report to you. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, if you are not about other people and other people's success, and if it's all about you, and if it's all about you taking credit for all of your work personally, you'll, you'll crash and burn. Yeah. And so being able to understand other people, being able to understand how they have a part to play on the path to success and giving them credit and making them the heroes. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the podcast for people who value real, different conversations. Conversations that sit at the intersection of how to design a legendary business and a legendary life. And conversations that we hope inspire you to take the road less traveled. On this episode, it's a very, very special conversation with the most effective executive I've ever met or worked with, a woman I love dearly, the incredible Sue Barsamian. We're sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. I'd also encourage you to go to lockhead.com. You know, our website's pretty good, I think. And uh, most importantly, even if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, uh, Overcast, Player FM, etc., we only know you're there when you go to lockhead.com and you subscribe to our newsletter. And I'll promise you, A, we send good stuff. We've been putting a lot of time and attention into the newsletter and the content there. And B, we'll never sell your name to anyone else. And if you subscribe, we'll also send you the first chapter of my latest book, Niche Down, for free. Or as we say often, I'll say, gratis. <laughs> All right. The most effective executive I've ever seen or worked with Sue Barsamian. She's had the kind of career that people dream about in Silicon Valley. Today, she's retired as an operating executive, and she sits on the board of $15 billion publicly traded Symantec and $2.5 billion publicly traded Box, as well as Gainsight and Exactly. She started off her career in engineering. She's been in entrepreneurial situations. She's been a startup CMO. Uh, and Sue and I worked together for a number of years at Mercury. Um, and when it all came to an end, um, we sold Mercury to HP for $5 billion. And Sue and I more than just worked together. We were two in a box. Uh, and the truth is, even though she was my chief of staff, I'm mad enough to admit it. I should have been working for Sue because Sue is the mayor of awesome town. Um, really, there's so much to learn here. And, um, uh, you know, I think, I think you should get your pen ready because you're going to want to take a lot of notes. Um, Sue went on after the Mercury acquisition to um, do a number of jobs at Hewlett Packard, including running their entire enterprise security business. And get this, 
She ran all of sales and marketing for HP Software, the whole thing. And then when that got spun out into MicroFocus, she did that job at MicroFocus. And once she'd crushed it and left an amazing legacy, she retired. I love this woman. She is incredible. I hope, actually, I don't hope. I know you're going to love her too. Get your notebook ready or go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes and key takeaways from this episode. Now, hey ho, let's go. I fucking love you. (laughs) (laughs) Right back at you. (laughs) It is so great to see you. Oh, it's God, I miss you. Likewise. You know, we were in a foxhole together. It felt like for 200 years. Yeah, it was. It was. We communicated every day for what? Four years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, multiple times a day. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. It would be, it would have been unusual for us to go 48 hours without some kind of communication. Regardless of travel schedule, just very connected. Yes. And so it is sort of strange to go from that level of interaction to, hey, see you once a year. (laughs) (laughs) I know we we need to fix that. (laughs) Well, yeah, there are ebbs and flows in life, but uh you know, man, we were in some kind of foxhole together, weren't we? Yeah, I would say we were sisters from another mother, but siblings from another mother. Yeah, I was, uh, do you know Gina Bianchini by chance? Just through you. Yeah, yeah. so she she says uh, a, a guy and a gal can have a bromance. Oh, okay, yeah. So she, yeah. I guess we have a bromance. That would be our category. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's, I, I, I don't want to argue with Gina, so. <laughs> oh. And I, you know, I think about how, um, how much convincing it took to get you even to come to Mercury. <laughs> yeah. I think you, I, I, as I tell people, you kind of put me in a headlock. Is that um, how you describe I was, it? Yeah. And, and it was the best decision I ever made. I mean, I was there full time, but as a, as an, as a theoretically uncommitted consultant, um, greatest consulting gig on the planet. Um, and you gave me an ultimatum. Um, and were pretty compelling and I took it and it was a great decision. So Did thank it feel you. like thank an ultimatum? Um, you no, know, because you're amazingly good at that, but ultimately it was clear that it was an, an ultimatum, right? There was only one path forward. Um, and the world's best consulting gig would come to an end at some point. And so joining full time was, it was time to make a commitment. And I think you were clear and compelling. And thank you for that, because it turned out to be one of the greatest job runs and one of the greatest teams of certainly in my career. And I think um, many, many people say the same thing about that era at Mercury. Yeah, it's amazing how powerful the network is, isn't it? Yeah. What people's memories are of it. Yeah. Yeah. And still very connected. I mean, I think if you, you know, if I look aside from seeing you today, if I just look at the last month and it's pretty typical, I've probably seen, you know, five people from, from that team yeah, um, and just get together. It's just great. It's funny you remember it as an ultimatum. I remember it more as me begging. (laughs) (laughs) 
I guess it's just the which side you're on at the time. I mean, I, I knew coming in that you were incredible. The thing that I found out that was so shocking was, and we don't have to talk about the individual, but the guy who was running marketing when I showed up, what I quickly realized is, oh, that guy does nothing. <laughs> Sue does his job. He takes her work and presents it as his. Ta-da. And I was like, wow, I didn't know you could hire somebody else to do your job and you could pretend to be the guy, right? And so it just occurred to me, well, what there is to do is fire that guy and hire the gal who's actually doing the job. <laughs> As a consultant, you don't tend to worry about those things. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just have a billion questions to ask you, but... I guess maybe how do you think about um, how do you think about your career and careers today? Like you've had one of the legendary careers. Yeah, you know, it's so I just I just retired from the day to day career. You know, people tell me you don't say retired when you go off and you go do board work and you're still pretty busy. But I, I retired from operating roles. And, you know, as I look back on it, it was 36 years Um it was in the scope of today. You started when you were four, right? I started when I was four. Yeah, I love you. <laughs> in the scope of today's, you know, I guess, cadence of people moving around, um, pretty stable. I, I, in 36 years, I worked for eight companies, but two of them were acquired. So yeah. I really worked for six companies. And which in um, tech is unheard in of. Tech pretty is, much. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm maybe to a fault. I'm, I'm loyal um, through good and through bad, but I had, I had somewhere between 20 to 25 different jobs. So even though I was stable in companies, I did a ton of a, a ton of things. And, you know, one of the reasons why, and I, I, I did large and small, but one of the reasons why I stayed, for example, I stayed at HP after HP acquired Mercury for a decade, um, which I never thought I, I would at the I time. I remember you, you remember were that? pretty mad when the acquisition went yeah, down. If yeah, I remember, I remember yeah. a very heated conversation yes, with you yes. about this. I, I mean, you we, being heated at yes. me. Um, and I, I ended up having a great run at HP. And w one of the things, you know, aside from meeting a completely new crowd of phenomenal executives and leaders there, I got to do unbelievable things at scale. And, you know, the thing about these large companies is they're usually complicated and messy. And I, you know, we, we had our share of that at Mercury. I love that. And so HP gave me a chance to kind of test myself at a scale that I had never tested myself at, you know, can you lead 4,000 people? Can you do $10 billion of a PL? You know, just a whole different ball game and you never know till you try it. And so that was, that was fun. I had a blast. And did, did you ever have a moment where you sort of woke up and went, I'm pretty fucking good at this $10 billion <laughs> PL that I'm in charge of here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do have your moments. You also have. You know, you're Wonder Woman, right? Yeah, you know, know you are, right? Um, I mean, do you have to know? You know, um, I think looking back, you never at the time, maybe, maybe I'll answer it this way. I would say that my career has been characterized by 
leaps of faith and, you know, many, many times in my career doing things that if I came in off the street, you would never put me in that role, right? There was, there would be nothing about my resume that would say she could do that. But one of the things about staying with companies is companies take risk on people that they think can stretch. And that benefited me tremendously through my career. Good so, companies do, not all companies, companies do, right? Good companies, yeah. So I, you know, I mean, HP, I ran I ran a billion-dollar cybersecurity business for HP. I knew nothing about cybersecurity. And I remember they called me to suggest the job to me. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, why, why would you why would you put me in to run a cybersecurity business? And they said, because we think you can do it. And, and it was phenomenal. Um, it's, it's hard work to kind of onboard when you're doing something completely new, but it's phenomenal. And I think I love the challenge of, of stretching. Um, and I think consistently, if you look at my 36 years, there were many times where I'm like, holy crap, like, you know, do they know I am really in no way ready for this? But you figure it out. Well, you figure it out. <laughs> and at the end, you were running all sales and marketing, were you not? Or, for the software division. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and every w- more or, or, or none. <laughs> like <laughs> sales and marketing, sales yeah, and marketing. Yeah, sales yeah. And marketing. yeah. Which is unusual in the tech industry. It's very rare that one executive yeah. is running sales and marketing. Yeah. 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 Um, and that was, especially when you're going through a transformation, having both is really helpful because you can really focus people down. And, and, you know, honestly, I learned focus from you when I worked for you. you no, I, I did. What do you mean you learned? I, I am not known as a you focus know, kind I, of guy. I, I, I know you say that, but when you think about um, your playbook and when you think about certainly what we did at Mercury, um, you know, we ran that machine around sales plays, around strikes. So I learned the concept of a strike from you. You invented the sales plays. Uh, yes. So we both brought something to the table, but you think about that. I mean, that, that was incredibly focusing. And so, you know, having sales and marketing together just allows you to rerun. I just reran that playbook time and time and time again. Hmm. You know, we're going to do sales plays. We're going to live and die by sales plays. Many people now call them kind of your use cases. Pick your phrase, but it's it's shades of the same thing. And then I, to be honest, I don't think anybody has replicated strikes like like you did. Um, you know, that was just we did what two a year. Yep. Sometimes a third would, would, you know, sneak in there, but yep. generally two a year where, you know, this concept that you blanket the airwaves um, on all fronts. And then you just basically draft off that, that blast for the next six months. And then you, you do the next. And, and that to this day, I, you know, I think very few people are that focused mm-hmm. in terms of how they execute. I talked to a company recently and, you know, they'd read the book and they're like, yeah, and, and, and we're thinking we want to do eight lightning strikes this year. <laughs> I said, well, if you're doing eight, they're, they're not, not lightning, lightning strike. strikes. Yeah. yeah. The other interesting thing that I never thought with the strike idea, you know, because I stole it from the movie business. Oh, 
In right. what way? Well, I just looked at how Hollywood launches oh, how a they movie launch. yeah. and they yeah. hang everything on one weekend and they yeah. build into that weekend. And when I was in the startup world, I didn't have money to compete at scale with IBM or anybody. It's yeah. just like, well, the only way I could figure out to do this and compete with big guys when I was a, you know, I had a little guy was maybe we could compete with them for a week. Right. Yeah. And so, and then I sort of noticed that model in Hollywood and built the strike model off of that. The thing that I didn't realize, and it happened at HP, I remember this conversation with Deb, Deb Nelson, and it was certainly in the case at Mercury and other places where the whole company gets on the cadence of the strike. Yeah. And so the engineering team starts realizing, okay, so we're going to do this twice a year. If I want my product yeah. to, to really be showcased, I need to get my shit together so that yeah. I'm part of the fall strike or the <clears throat> yeah. spring strike or whatever it is. And, and the, the, the positive unintended consequence that I saw uh, was it became a cadence for dr continuously keeping the company moving forward. Engineers knew that, you know, they need, needed to hit the October strike if they were going to be part of it. And if not, their product wasn't really going to get showcased in a major way until May or whatever it was. Yeah, because I remember the policy we had was you couldn't be part of the launch as a new product if you weren't 90 days to GA. Right. Right. So it, it drove the whole deliverable schedule. You're exactly right. I had forgotten about that aspect of it, but it really did galvanize the whole company. And, um, you know, that was just a it, it, it had really good outcomes for Mercury. But it's just, you know, as you think back on your career and, you know, people who influence you for me, you being one of the key and just philosophies that influence you, that was probably one of the biggest takeaways and learnings, you know, that that formed for me probably the next 10 to 15 years mm. of, of work. Well, and the gift you gave me was uh, you were then and are now the single most effective executive I've ever seen or heard of. Oh, well, that's incredibly flattering. I've, Thank you. There's yeah. nobody I've heard of. You know, you hear stories about Ray Lane and I mean, you, you work for Mark Hurd and you hear he's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I know there's yeah. other executives who are really good, but you taught me how to get shit done. You taught me, um, in, it's funny you say that I taught you focus. I think you taught me focus. And the thing I loved about working together is my brain is a total tops down brain. Yeah. And you're so much more bottoms up. And, and to see you work a spreadsheet. <laughs> Is is the, can, can, that can be a negative? It was a good combination. Oh, you are a spreadsheet. <laughs> like uh, whenever I would see you, particularly with a new person sitting down with like the spreadsheet yeah. of to dos, I'd be like, oh, they're about to go through the Sioux Olympics. Do you remember that? We used to call <laughs> yes, it the Sioux yeah, Olympics. The Sioux Olympics. It yeah. was like the decathlon, yeah. and you would put them through a month worth of you know hell, and if they came out the other side, they made it. And a lot of people didn't come out the other side of the Sioux yeah, Olympics. Yeah, you used to say you've been sued. Yes. <laughs> And, you know, it was a it was a great combination. And I think in your career, when you realize that you have this combination of skills with somebody else, it's why you and I were such a good partnership is I never tr I mean, I looked at you. You had this amazing skill set that was a compliment to me. And I didn't try to be you. 
and you didn't try to be me. I we, couldn't we be just, you. Yeah, even I, couldn't, if I, and tried. I couldn't be you. Um, <laughs> but but then you know when everybody's happy, kind of playing their part, but realizing that teams are formed through combinations of people with different skill sets, and which is why diversity on a team is so great. The combination of the two of us gave the full spectrum, and I you know I still I I have so many lockheadisms to this day that come out of my mouth. It's just hilarious when, when, you know, then the people that I'm around start saying them as well. And somebody will say to me, where did that come from? And it all comes back to you. But, you know, one is the big animal picture, right? Mm -hmm. The, you know, just the ability to net out and realizing how important it is, because I am in the detail, but realizing the importance of like, you have to paint the big picture for people and it has to be simple and it has to be bold uh, and it has to be inspirational. And then your ability to communicate around that is certainly your ability to do that is unsurpassed um, with no teleprompters, no, you know, lots of notes, but kind of getting up and doing it in in the moment, very authentically. I certainly learned a tremendous amount about communication from you. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah. That's very kind of you to say. There was one big fucked up thing at Mercury uh, with you and I, though. You know what that was? What? The org chart was wrong. <laughs> like I look at it today and I go, on what planet? Were you not my boss? Like, <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, but anyway, you said something interesting. You, you use the D word, the diversity. Um, yeah. w- say more about what you mean by that. Well, I mean much more than um, than gender diversity, right? You, you know, today, certainly in tech, it's all about gender diversity. And I'm a huge advocate of that, right? I, I'm, I'm very involved in- um, You're in all these high power, super ding dong women groups yes, and things, exactly. right? Yes, um, exactly. But I, you know, I'm, I'm diversity with a capital D. Um, I, you know, I believe that, you know, human bias is you tend to, you tend to go with the majority. You tend to surround yourself with people you're comfortable with. And at the end of the day, uh, homogeneous teams are not strong teams. And I think there's been a tremendous amount of research that has validated that. And so I think that means cultural, that means um, that means economic, that means demographic. It just means, you know, put mix it up and put different people around you that will challenge you and bring a different perspective and gender's part of it. But, but you know, there's just a million axes for diversity. Yes. And you, you have to pay attention to it because the bias for teams is they start to, to look the same if yes. you're not careful. Well, and I've come to believe that uh, if you reach consensus, you really did something wrong. If you reach consensus easily. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, yeah. maybe, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's probably yeah. a more rigorous yeah. way of saying it. The The other interesting thing is, uh, and this may sound funny, um, but I'll just say what's in my mind. I never really thought of you as a woman. <laughs> or or the, let me, maybe more accurately, <laughs> the fact that you were female was never in my mind, right? Yeah. Whether it was yeah. at the very beginning when I was desperate to get you on board or, you know, you and I just had a partnership. It felt like yeah. to me instantaneously, we were hand in glove. Yeah. 
and it was just like we were yeah. uh, you know undi- indivisible right quick i mean we developed a a a a language and understanding uh, uh, core values i mean we yeah. were just locked and loaded it felt like i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm sugaring it up no over no no time, no not but at that's all. how yeah, it felt yeah. for me from the beginning totally yeah yeah i'm i'm pretty gender agnostic as well right so you need to be you need to be conscious of that when you're building a diverse team but once you get into the team um I'm completely agnostic. People, just because of my career, because I started out as an engineer, you know, I get a lot of questions on discrimination. And you're almost embarrassed these days to not have your discrimination story. Um, but I I don't. And I don't doubt that that discrimination is there. And I'm incredibly empathetic to women who have experienced it. And I'm incredibly grateful to the women who have fought against it. Um, I personally, I never, um, I never looked for it. Maybe, maybe it was there, but it never occurred to me if, if I was facing a problem, just emotionally, it would never occur to me that I was being discriminated against. My, my assumption was, well, I didn't do something right, or I should do that better, or I should rethink how I did it. And it's possible that through my career, there were cases of discrimination. I just chalked it up to something else. Mm. The interesting thing to me about you, and there were many other incredibly powerful, successful women at Mercury. uh, I would describe Mercury as a very male company. Right. Uh, it, it's it's attitude, it's leadership, Israeli tank commanders all over the place. Uh, it was very candid, very direct, very no bullshit. It was terrifying. I remember I remember one time Ali calling me and this gal that uh, he had re- recruited for a very long time, joined the company and uh, she quit at the end of her first week. And he called me to tell me she quit and he was afraid I was going to be mad at him. And I said, that's great news. And he said, what do you mean? It took us six months to get her and this and that. And I said, well, because if after a week in our culture, she needed to leave, then we needed her to leave. Anyway, very hard charging. I would would say male-oriented culture. And yet you and a handful of others as well, of course, were insane. I mean, I think there's a very real chance that... You were either the most respected executive in the company, or there was certainly no executive at Mercury that was more respected no. than you. Oh, well, thank you. That's very nice. But um, it's true. But and that's in sales. That's in engineering. Yeah. That's in finance. I mean, you you played yeah. everywhere in the company. You know, we had, um, I, I would agree with you in that if you were trying to gender stereotype that culture, you would say it was male. And yet there are so many amazing female executives that loved that. Stunners. Yeah. Marav Davidson, Dion Hedgepath, um, just. Shelly. Yeah. I mean, just incredibly strong female leaders. I think what people loved about that culture, which can tend to get categorized as male, is it was just straight talk. Right. It was um, I, I always say there was no back channel 
in that company because whatever needed to be said got said to your face. And it was, you know, it was um, it was never rude on a personal level, but it was often extremely blunt. Um, And you had to defend, um, you know, or not and, you know, kind of deal with it in the moment. And then. Everybody went out for drinks. So it was it was that kind of a straight talk culture, which is so positive and just so freeing for people to operate in. To that to this day, when you meet anybody from that era, they say that was one of the best things about the company. I couldn't agree more. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. It was so frontal. There there literally was no back channel conversation. Yeah, the conversation no was the conversation. Yeah. And if someone was mad at you, you knew. Yeah. And you knew why. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't know why so many companies, and I think in our society, we've confused sort of being cordial with not being straight or direct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good question. I think in, you know, look, the workforce, the workplace is complicated these days with um, you know, I'll say me too, but just a a whole bunch of things like, you know, people are, are cautious about company cultures, about interpersonal relationships. And, you know, those things don't need to be contradictory. I mean, you can be very straight with somebody and, do it in a way that's also professional. And I think, I think that was a great example of that culture. Yeah. The other thing I, uh, with you, um, when I talk to younger people, what I say to them is, listen, the secret to success is to be undeniable. And that's how I talk about you. And they're like, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And what, like, look, let me tell you about my friend, Sue. Because when I ask her about all this stuff, that stuff doesn't exist for her. She was too busy putting results on the board, yeah. right? You were too busy kicking intergalactic ass <laughs> to like get caught up in some other, like, I don't know what discussion, right? You were just not. And so you could have been the most sexist male chauvinist asshole on planet earth, but witnessing Sue Barsamian in action is a... I mean, you are a result production manufacturing plant. And I mean, there even the most, you know, anti-female male on planet Earth would be like, hmm, I think we need her on the team. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think it's, um, you know, people say to me what career advice and whether it's a, a young woman asking me or a, a young guy, you know, it's the same thing, which is just don't, you, I, I don't say don't pay attention to planning your journey and networking and all those things. But at the end of the day, none of that matters if you're not delivering results. And yes. so if you wake up every day and you have time to do one thing, deliver and exceed expectations. And, um, you know, certainly if, if I look at my career and 36 years with over 20 different jobs, and when I think back on it, I applied for two jobs 
mm. out of my 20 plus. Right. right. You just you just get pulled in. Yes. And, and people say, well, how did you plan the mm. your career? And I say, I, 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 I didn't really, because if you deliver before you can finish what you're working on, somebody's pulling you into another forest fire. And because there's always stuff to be there's always stuff to be fixed and there's always broken businesses. And, you know, if you, if you, if you prove yourself to be somebody that can, you know, do what we did at, at Merker, where you take kind of a company that's at this point and transition it and transform it to be a, from a single product company to a multi-product solution oriented, big category company, you know, the, your ability to go replicate that is pretty common. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I explained to people per your point is, so there's the experience we get doing it and then there's the reputation. Yeah. Right. And, and the group of us that did that took a three, $400 million company that was very successful yeah. in testing and all that, but took it to a whole other place, took it to North of a billion dollars and a four and a half billion dollar outcome with, with HP. And, you know, in a f relatively short period yeah. of time, uh, and that's a tough thing to do. And, I always explain to people, I think we, we learn a ton by losing and I think there's real value yeah. in that. But in addition, the value of being on a winning team, that Mercury halo exists to this day, yeah. which is surprising to me, but it does. Yeah, it really does. Um, and you know, everybody's got hopefully the opportunity to do one or two of those, but I, I actually think you said this in one of your speeches, um, which is the the probability that a single career includes more than a handful of those is pretty unusual. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of our colleagues, Doug Smith, was just, I was just at, um, he went on to co-found Anaplan. And I know. I was just yeah. at his, he had a, a party to celebrate that. And, uh, you know, he's had- My invitation must have got lost in the email <laughs> then, I guess. I'm sure you were on the list. <laughs> You know, it was it was great to hear him say, and he's had a phenomenal career to say, you know, there were three amazing teams I was on in my career. One was H&Q. He was on in the H&Q heyday, um, Mercury, and then for him, the early days of Anaplan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, it, even for a career that has spanned, in his case, almost four decades, to actually have three phenomenal teams experience is pretty amazing. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I didn't know the ins and outs of the Anaplan, yeah. um, but I knew enough about H&Q because uh, when I first got to Silicon Valley, Hamburg and Quist were our lead bankers at Vantive. Okay. Yeah. And so one of my first ever, you know, real yeah. meetings in that world was with Christina Morgan and Dan Chase. And I mean, you want to talk about, I heard this expression recently, my friend, um, uh, Rick Bennett, the advertising marketing assassin, mm -hmm. uh, described him as high bandwidth conversations. Uh, you know, when you sit down with Christina Morgan yeah. and Dan, Dan Chase, uh, Dan yeah. Case at the time, holy fucking high bandwidth <laughs> conversation. In my case, I, I wasn't even 30. So it's was like, wow. But yeah, that was an amazing place. Yeah. We know Mercury. And so you're right. Three is a lot. Three is a lot. And I know, I'm sure you've experienced this. There's a lot of people at Mercury who haven't done very well since Mercury because they keep looking for that culture yeah. and they can't find it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, sometimes when you're in it, 
you don't necessarily analyze it, right? Yes. Um, and, you know, usually things are good when they're good and it all looks great on the surface. And what you realize, certainly what you and I realize is, you know, it took work to make all of that happen. And I think we were close enough to it that we, you know, I'll steal your phrase, but, you know, we understood the playbook because you you build the playbook. Um, but sometimes when you're in the environment and you're not, you know, you're going along day to day and you're not really spending enough time kind of analyzing how you're doing it, you're mm-hmm. just doing it, then you can't necessarily go off and, and replicate it. Um, you know, it's what I used to say through the, once I was at HP, which, you know, was great for its ups and its downs. And I learned a ton through the turmoil, actually a tremendous amount through the turmoil. And I used to tell people, you know, you're getting a free MBA in crisis management, pay attention. Right. right. Pay attention because. Write some shit down. Yeah. <laughs> Take some notes. Pay attention, you know, <laughs> um, like it's never going to get more interesting, harder, messier than this. Um, and you have a tremendous opportunity to kind of learn through the crisis if you actually think of it that way. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more there. Yeah. there there are those times, and, and and I think there were moments where we were wise enough. I can remember being, you know, at management meetings in Tel Aviv, and and, yeah. and you know, various different places at various different times, and, and sort of looking at you, and you and I, you and I, sort of saying like, "This is one of those moments." Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, let's pay attention. Let's pay attention. Something's going yeah. on here. Um, the other thing that's on my mind, I don't know if this is a hundred percent true, but. One of the things that doesn't get talked about very much in business is really big jobs. The truth is for them to work, you, you almost need two in a box. Yeah. And when, my yeah. relationship with you is we were two in a box. Yeah. There's no chance in hell I would have made any decision of consequence without mm-hmm. talking to you. Yeah. And for me to make a decision that you didn't believe in, I, I mean, I don't think I yeah. ever did. Um, and- and so, but you always sort of see that, you know, there's one mythical leader yeah. on the cover of whatever magazine and stuff. And, and so I'm just curious what your thoughts on two in a box are now. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, and I think you're totally right. And I think as I look at, um, you know, call it the 15 year, 10 to 15 years post my partnership with you, um, I've continued to see, not consistently, but I've continued to to realize that model. So my last couple of years at HP, which I were, were some of the hardest years of my career, but also phenomenal in terms of learning and work experience. Um, my boss was Chris Shu, who was the COO of HP and then went on to be the CEO of the software division and, and then Microfocus. And, um, you know, I, we had that kind of you a partnership. Had we had that partnership. He was a phenomenal executive. He, he covered my blind spots. I, you know, I think I covered his. Uh, we both learned from each other. We got along incredibly well and, you know, just didn't second guess each other. And 
were better because of the partnership, certainly than either of us would have been individually. Um, yeah. And I, I think about that now and I think more, more people should realize that that's, if they're going to have giant jobs, yeah. one person can't do those giant jobs. I think, I don't think that executive teams necessarily think this way. I don't think that headhunters necessarily mm-hmm. think this way. Um, you know, I just think about, you always had me covered. You took, you took heat for me. Um, I didn't have to take much hate for you, but (laughs) I don't know that that, you're probably being very generous, but like, and, and I was just remembering something. I'm curious if you had this with the other Chris, do you remember people used to call us mom and dad? Yeah. 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 And I can, I can remember distinct conversations with people talking about how hard it was to divide and conquer mom and dad, (laughs) because I don't know what happened when they talked to you, but whenever anybody talked to me where it was sort of beginning to be clear that they were trying to end run something on you, I'd be like, listen, if you think that I'm going to sit here and have you badmouth her, have you tell me that what she (laughs) wants you to do is not what there is to do and you get a different decision from me or any of that, you're fucking crazy (laughs) because I am not, I mean, if Sue says it, we're doing it, right? And And they they couldn't divide (laughs) at least mom from dad in my case. Um, But do you remember they used to call us that? Yeah, they used to call us that. And it was true. It was true. And was yeah. it like that for you with yeah. Chris at Microfocus, yeah, HB and Microfocus? It was. And did we they were, call you mom and dad yeah, in the yeah, same way? Yeah, I think way? some people actually did use it. So I smiled when you said that. Um, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, it becomes a great partnership. Uh, people people look at you and it's not, I think the other thing you realize is it's not completely normal that the leadership team is really a team, right? Yes. The, and certainly I, I saw many different eras at HP, good and bad. And in the, you know, in, when times got really rocky, you couldn't always look around you and think that the leadership team was a team. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that Meg did is she just, she was great at, and it it took her a couple turns, right? Because when you're in, I mean, she inherited a, you know, $130 billion company with 330,000 people. Um, and, you know, when I look at what she did for the five to six years that she was there, it was phenomenal from a business fundamentals perspective, but she had to build multiple versions of the team, sometimes because you don't always get it right, but also because as times change, you need different people. And she was really, really aware of kind of right person, right role right time, right attitude, and was very willing to act on making changes when she had a good person, but it wasn't the right time for that person Mm. or a good person that had maybe done a decade of transformation. And at some point you're just tired. Yeah. You're just tired. You need to move. Well, you know, at the end of Mercury, I think most of us were exhausted. I mean, yeah. I, I was yeah. done. I mean, I was completely deep fried. There's yeah. not a chance I could have continued. <laughs> I mean, was just... now, there's two big things I really would love to dig into with you because it's how I describe you to people and I have no idea how the fuck you do it. Uh, one is this thing about being the most effective executive I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Uh, so uh, on one dimension, I want to sort of understand, like if I'm somebody who wants to be a quarter as effective as you are, like how you are so effective, you're so on it. And then to me, 
that sits right next to this other thing that you are, which is this stunning combination of self-actualized. You know who you are. You know what you're doing. You know why you're doing it. You're an insane mom. You're an insane wife. I, I, I assume you're an incredible daughter. I, I know you're an incredible friend. So you're like, you're this self-actualized person. You know who you are and you're very grounded in who you are. And you're also incredibly self-aware. You know, you talked about your blind spots. You know where you're world-class and you know where you're not. And I can remember you building plans and you're going, okay, you know, and then this needs to happen here. And you would just, you had no, a lot of executives have ego around things. Maybe they're not as good at, and you'd be like, no, no, this is where we bring in so-and-so. And And it was very clear what you were doing. And so those two things being completely self-actualized and self-aware and being insanely kind of effective and results oriented, that's how I describe you. But I want to know how the fuck do you do those things? How is, how do I, how do I be like Sue on those dimensions? You know, it's a great question. Um, I think the first is my playbook, right? The second, the, I never really thought about being self-actualizing about how I execute, you know, the plan, but, and maybe it's because by, you know, by training, I'm an engineer, so I'm, I'm analytical and, you know, that, that can be a positive and a, and a negative, which is why it was a good compliment with you. But, you know, I, I love problems and I love breaking things down. And so if I, if I summarized my execution model, um, I do enough analysis to know what the outcome needs to be and what the levers are that that need to drive the outcome. And in some cases, there are things you need to create. And in some cases, there are things you need to change. And then um, somebody said something that I resonated with, which is, you know, kind of mile by mile, it's a trial. Yard by yard, it's hard. Inch by inch, it's a cinch. Right. Mm. And so you take something really hard and and sometimes really long. Could you and, just say that again? And just <laughs> no, no, I'm not gonna say that again. <laughs> registers in my whiskey stained database here. <laughs> um, the so you take something that you know is gonna be complicated and you know it's going to be you used to say it's like trying to swallow something larger than your head, right? It's like you know, at some point there's it's a huge heavy lift for the team. And um I break, you know, I break things down. Um and you you do weekly monthly milestones. And, you know, pretty soon you're at a six month, 12 month, 18 month transformation. I mean, at at HP, we did stuff that, you know, it took years to get it done um, because those were really big, really messy problems. But, you know, I'm just all around about breaking it down while keeping people focused on the prize. Hmm. The other thing is this, I want to go back to this sort of self-awareness and self-actualization. You know, I describe you as the most effective executive, uh, the most legendary operating executive. And then 
people sort of say, well, you know, what, what was she like strategically or creatively? And I said, well, um, I don't know that creativity in a traditional sense, particularly in marketing, when you sort of think about it in that context is necessarily Sue's greatest strength, but don't kid yourself. This woman was fucking smart as shit. And so strategically, you're this very weird combination because strategically you could sit down and have a very thoughtful, detail-oriented conversation about the category, the market, the competition, what's going on, our product set, where we're weak, where we're strong, acquisition. And so a lot of very executional-oriented executives can be pretty tactical. Yeah. But yet when the conversation goes to a strategic, what should we do acquisition-wise? Should we expand in Europe? Should we this? Should we that? Like, you have all that too. Like, what the (laughs) fuck you, Subarsamian? Like, and so you have this very, very detail-oriented execution, get stuff done. But at the same time, you're very strategic. And in areas where you're not particularly strong, it doesn't matter because you bring those people in. And so I guess, how can you be so strategic and so tactical at the same time? Yeah, I I think... um Honestly, I, I credit you with a lot of that. I think that, and going back to the, as you're doing these things, how are you studying it enough to, to formulate a playbook? And, you know, you think about what we did as just one example, you know, it was all about the category. It was all about analyzing the category where we were in as insufficient. You know, we had great product market fit. But the category wasn't going to sustain us, right? And so you say, okay, I had great product market fit, but I need a bigger category. And so how do we take some of the things that the company also had at, at its disposal that were kind of on the fringe? And how do you create a bigger category for you to play in? And so you think about that. I mean, it's pretty strategic to to just... And then your ability to go replicate that in many other situations and say, okay, how are we thinking about product market fit? How are we thinking about the category and the size of the category, the maturity of the category, the competitive landscape in the category and and who you were going to be in the category? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think the other thing, and we haven't talked a lot about it, but it really goes back to, you know, the concept of the sales plays, the concept of the strikes. That was a go-to-market playbook, yes. right? So the category gave you the place to play. Yes, right? the playing field right? and the game. Right. And- Where are you going to play? And there's a whole strategic decision around where are you going to play? But then there's the whole, how are you going to play? And your ability to go from that strategic discussion to, okay, and now we're going to create these laminates for the sales force that on one side of them have a picture of the product line in this particular area. We call them centers, the suites. And then on the flip side, have the sort of workflow diagram for how this set of products fit into the customer's world. And then we're going to teach you exactly what to say and what to do. And, you know, it's like, okay, so we're going moose hunting and we're doing it with bows. We're going to be focused in these five geos the moose are generally here here's a heat seeking map yeah. of where the, like you you got it down from a 30,000 foot strategic view we want to do BTO we want to do this big yeah. new category play da, da, da. we're going to set this agenda to okay frontline salesperson you call on this title you do these things yeah. step by, I mean you made it 
making yeah. freaking Big Macs. Yeah, well, paint by number. Exactly. Yeah, yeah making There Big was Macs. no freeform yeah. jazz, right? There the was sales force was not going and going, ah, you know, maybe. <laughs> no, they played yeah. the same song in every sales call. Yeah, in, you know, back to the focus, right? You, um, if you were running one of the plays, and again, call it a use case, call it a play, whatever you want to call it, you would have the benefit of the customer could go to the web or our website and it would look like we dominated. There would be references, there would be ROI calculations. You would have everything at your disposal to speed through a sales cycle and get the sale. If you went off the playbook, you were kind of on your own, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't jump through hoops to create a bunch of custom stuff in order to help you close that sale. Right. right? You were looking for moose. And if there was a duck over here, well, you, you had to, yeah, you were luck. on your own. With you the were duck. on your own. The other thing is, um, so we were, you know, the dynamic duo on the marketing side, but we had unbelievable sales leaders. I mean, we unbelievable. Had, you know, we had Jay Larson, we had Joe Sexton, we had DQ, Dave Contrell, Anamia, um, you know, at that time. McCracken. Yeah, McCracken. And so, um, you know, and and Joe Sexton, uh, just as one example, his ability to just lead from the front and go out and be the guy who gave the best sales pitch yeah. In the company. And, um, you know, while we had. And, I, well, see, he had this huge advantage that none of us could or certainly I couldn't replicate, which is that Southern that cowboy southern, charm. Yeah. Right. And he, he was incredibly charming. And, and my yeah. favorite Joe Sexton always is. And the good news is the truth is on our side. <laughs> You're right. He had great sayings. He um, had all those great yeah. Southern gentleman-y cowboy yeah. type sayings. Right. And, and the mustache, of course, the mustache is hard to compete with. Yeah, which with. he doesn't have anymore. Did he shave yeah, the stash? He looks great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm modern. The modern version. I need to yeah. call him. I'm not so sure I'm up with that. Yeah. I'm down for that. Yeah. So he, um, you know, the fact that I, I think we did a really good job of enablement, um, but the best enablement was the guy went on, you know, hundreds of sales calls a year and every person that went on a sales call with him ended up learning. And well, and one of the things he taught me at one point, we rolled out sort of an update to the point of view and he really yeah. was adamant. I'm sure you remember that everybody should be able to give yeah. the POV sales corporate deck talk as a chalk talk on their own. Yeah. Yeah. And remember we did that video and we everybody had video. to watch the yeah. video and drawing the Stonehenge on the whiteboard and all that. And then do it themselves. And he said, yeah. We're going to certify every rep. And that MFR flew to every office. I did a handful of them with him, but he did the entire yeah. Americas. And every he sat in the back of the room and watched every single card carrying rep yeah. and SE get up. And he either gave him the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And if you got the thumbs down, you need to keep work. You, you didn't get certified. Yeah. You weren't getting your commissions. I mean, he took the ability to execute the plays and in this in this particular example be able to tell the company yeah. story that seriously yeah it which is amazing and you know i think he went on to do that multiple times mcafee incredible outcome with intel mm -hmm. app dynamics app dynamics right? holy he shit just he just kept he made doing a bazillion it. dollars there didn't he <laughs> i love it god bless america yeah, and god bless it. joe sexton yeah.
Yeah. Now, here's the other thing I want to ask you. It may be a funny question, but there's multiple components of it. You're very smart. How did you get to be so smart? <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, no, but you're smart in like a spooky smart way. Oh, um, you know, I don't know. Um, I've, I grew up middle-class, you know, dad, an engineer, mom, homemaker, then masters in nursing. So I had, I had smart and intellectually curious parents, but they weren't, um, you know, fortune 500 executives. I, you know, I didn't grow up in that kind of a, of a house, but we were you know, we were diverse, right? We, music, um, you know, sports, it was, it was a, a really diverse environment. And I just, I think I grew up curious. Um, when I went to college, uh, computer science was really not a mainstream degree yet. So if you were, science or math inclined, you know, you did medicine or you did engineering. So I ended up doing engineering and then, um, how many gals were doing engineering with you? Not at the time? many, um, like 10% of the class at most. Um, and for engineering, it's, it's improved dramatically in computer science, which is now more a more mainstream degree. In electrical engineering, it's still, it's still pretty. Is it really? Yeah. It's still pretty low. Hmm. Yeah. And so were you just always smart or did you, did you make a decision? Was there some point where you realized you were like, so I, I always, I've always worked hard at whatever I did. Um, really? Whether, yeah. I never noticed <laughs> when I got those emails at 3am on Sunday morning from you. And so, um, I look, I think, um, I think I have a certain amount of intellectual capacity. Um, I think there are people who are way smarter than I am. I think that I- I don't think there are people who are a lot smarter I, than you are. I, I There may be people who are smarter on different dimensions. Yeah. I, but in the domain of, you know, technology executive- yeah, well, you're, you're, you're so lovely. Um, thank you. But, but did you I, decide to be smart or was it, you were just you know, smart and that's how it was? I, I think I, I, I have a certain baseline, but I, I, I work at it. I mean, I really work at it. So and you're so committed to being a smart person. I am committed. I'm committed to, um, I think I'm the type of person that has to have a certain grasp of what I'm doing. Yes. Um, I'm not comfortable. Well, I don't have to be the expert on everything. I have to, you know, I, I do believe that you have to have a certain amount of depth in order to then zoom out and, and focus on what really matters. If you, if you're not in it in sufficient detail, you won't actually know what matters or you won't know how to plot your trajectory. And so I've always, you know, from the time that I was younger, I've always kind of dove in to sufficient detail yeah. in order to feel like I had a command of whatever it was. Um, and, you know, then I, I worked, you know, I worked hard. I think that's a powerful insight, Sue, because 
I was just seeing um, um, Ron Howard's got this new documentary about Pavarotti. Oh, yeah. And when you hear most people talk about Pavarotti, uh, what you hear often is, oh, God, what amazing talent he was. Yeah. Well, here's what they don't know. He wasn't a prodigy. People didn't think he could sing. Yeah. It took him six years before he could suck. As a, young, right? as a young person, yeah. he was a quote unquote late bloomer and he made himself into fucking Pavarotti. And this is the thing that sort of pisses me off in the talent discussion, because I think talent almost can become an excuse, right? Like, you know, I met a lot of legendary people and it's very easy to look at you and go, well, whew, man, she's insanely smart and literally the most effective executive I've ever seen. I don't have the insanely smart, insanely effective uh, um, organ sitting next to my kidney that yeah. clearly Sue has. <laughs> so I'm just going to sit here and drink scotch. Right. And what they don't understand is you made, you made a commitment to be smart yeah. and you worked at being smart. Yeah. You're not smart by accident. I, I think that's totally true. Um, and I think, I think, Aside from my example, and there's been a lot of studies on this, right? It takes whatever the number is, 10,000 hours or whatever, you Who know, 10,000 hours yeah. or yeah. And so, but the point is it doesn't just happen. You right? don't just show up one day and yeah. be Sue Barsamian. Yeah. yeah. And the power of that, you know, I, I've seen you so many times stretch yourself. I've seen you so many times in situations that I know are uncomfortable mm -hmm. for you. And I'm the only one that knows, <laughs> right? I've, I've seen you in front yeah. of Wall Street in tough mm -hmm. situations, right? I've seen you in front of huge customer situations. You know, you and I would stand on stage at Mercury World in front of thousands yeah. of people together. And you're not naturally yeah. that person. Yeah. And there you are impeccably attired and just looking like, you know, a killer and you walk out and you open your mouth and people go, wow, holy shit. That I learned chick that. Is... I learned that from you, by the way. I Thank you. You give yeah. me way too much. No, no I totally stuff. learned that from you. No, but yeah. I mean, you in yeah. front of the room is yeah. unbelievable. You on a sales call, yeah. unbelievable. And this is another thing I sort of share with particularly younger people is um, when you walk in the room, you don't have to open your mouth. You don't have to say a word. Nobody needs to know your background is. They don't even know, need to know your name. When Sue Barsamian walks in the room, everybody knows a motherfucker just walked in the room. <laughs> everybody goes, who's that? Right? And, and, and that's something you trained yourself in. Yeah. Yeah, I think you have to. Um, yeah, I think you, you have to do it back to the comment about self-awareness. Um, you also have to be aware of other people people and you can't you can't walk into every room the same because every room's different and there's different people in it and different people resonate or engage or communicate in different ways and you know when i when i think about not just my career but my life um and people say you know what what's your passion and what motivates you? I say, ultimately, I, I love people. Mm. I, I love people. I love um, 
I love understanding people. I think one of the reasons why I've done global work my whole mm-hmm. career, and I, you know, I was from Kansas. Um, I had never been out of the country till I was 21. And I went to post-grad engineering school in Switzerland. And I was like, holy crap, like, wow, I'm not in Kansas anymore. And literally, uh, literally. Um, <laughs> And I, it started, exactly. It started me off on, you know, four decades almost of just loving. um, I loved working with different people, different cultures, different situations and, and understanding people and helping to make people successful. And, and by the way, back to the, how are you effective as a team. And I think, I think it's one of the reasons why I did well at HP in a matrix where in order to get things done in a company of 330,000 people, you need to move mountains that don't report to you. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, if you are not about other people and other people's success, and if it's all about you, and if it's all about you taking credit for all of your work personally, you'll, you'll crash and burn. Yeah. And so being able to understand other people, being able to understand how they have a part to play on the path to success and giving them credit and making them the heroes. And by the way, it's the same in customer is same thing, right? How do you, what do you, what did we do at Mercury? We made people's careers. We did. Actually. Um, and when and we, we knew they were making career decisions when they bought our stuff yeah. and we stood with them. And, and, and it was phenomenal for the people that hitched their wagon to helping us to create the next bigger category because yep. their careers were completely juiced as a result. I mean, how many of our customers got promoted and oh, promoted and promoted, yeah. right? And and we took incredible pride in Absolutely. in their success. And there are, there are just, you know, even you look at companies today and you think they don't think of the, they don't think of their customers in that way, right? At the end of the day, you're selling to a bunch of people who have their own careers and their own successes and failures and if you're helping them you're golden. You know, it's interesting. This is another one I talk to people about a lot, young entrepreneurs and, and executives in particular, which is, um, A, if your boss isn't winning, you're getting fired. Yeah. And B, if your customers aren't getting promoted, yeah. you're getting fired. Yeah. Right. Your job is to have your customers get, yeah. you know, we had customers who went from QA manager to CIO yeah. who would literally look us in the eye at the user conference and go, just so you know, you guys have been a big yeah. part of my career. Right. Yeah. That happened. That was a regular yeah. discussion. Exactly. Yeah. Now here's the other thing I want to ask you. I always used to call you still do the velvet hammer. <laughs> And I was good at the hammer part. I was way not good at the velvet part. And I, I'm maybe a smidge better on the velvet part because, you know, you taught me a lot about velvet. Um, but you're this magic velvet hammer. You're this incredibly sweet, affable, um, easy to be around, but like, holy fuck, there's a spreadsheet worth of to-dos and your bar is so high. People were terrified of you because of the bar of results and, and the time frame you want demanded those results. You were like a, a Navy SEAL and yet you're this 
affable, welcoming, char- so tell me about how, <laughs> if I wanted to be a better velvet hammer, how, how would you teach me to be a better velvet hammer? Well, there's pros and cons with that, by the way. Um, in fact, my my daughters were laughing because at my retirement party, my last chief of staff said to my daughters, you know, I did a tour in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and I never worked as hard as I did when I worked for your mother. So I believe it. Um, yeah, it's at the end of the day, I, I think it goes back to the people, right? You you have to. So I, I have a really high bar and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad, right? You have to you have to modulate it because especially when when you're in times of stress, you have to carry people along with you. And I, I think I've learned over time how to do that better. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly, quite frankly, I'm, I'm constantly kind of checking myself on that. Um, but if you just, if, if you just go back to the people element and you remember that, you know, everybody's human and you've got to think about everybody as a person and how do you bring them along? Um, you know, you got to be direct, but you got to do it in a way that they come with you. They don't, you know, want to, want to kill you. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, it's to this day, this morning, as a matter of fact, I had a conversation with an entrepreneur I'm working with and the specifics aren't important, but I thought we had essentially in our last meeting agreed to a set of stuff. Yeah. I get an email from two days ago. It's not only is it not the stuff we described to talked about, it's this whole other set of stuff. Okay. Yeah. And I was this close to sending him an email that said, go fuck yourself. I mean, I was absolutely, I I spent time with this guy. We went over this thing. We had lunch. We, you you know, the whole thing. Right. And then all this other stuff shows out of the blue. And the thing that really pissed me off was it was, it was to me, it was like nefarious stuff. It was stuff that he didn't have the balls to talk to me about in person. So he's like, oh, we're all happy horse shit when you're when we're together. And then he puts the tough stuff in an email. Right. And I was absolutely livid. The a more evolved version of me that sits here <laughs> before you today did not send him that email. Yeah. But I did have a phone call with him this morning. And I said to him, um, now, Jimmy, I'll just call him Jimmy. It's not his real name, obviously. But I said, I want you to know I was this close to sending you an email that said, go fuck yourself. And I began to unpack for him what was wrong. And what was wrong for me was I said, listen, under no circumstances should uh, any important term or condition, economics, strategic element, anything important in a relationship that you're working on, that we discuss. And what you don't do is what you did which is, it's very clear mm-hmm. there was a set of things you felt uncomfortable not being straight with me mm-hmm. about. You happy horseshitted me while you were, we were together. <laughs> I thought we had agreed. And then you came back with this email that was this whole other yeah. thing. And you blindsided me. I said, that's not how legendary people do this, yeah. right? And, and, and so I was channeling my inner Sue. Yeah. <laughs> But it's taken me a long time to be able to not just send the go fuck yourself email. Yeah. 
But you're natural at that. You're well, natural you know, at I, that. I, look, I think you you learn in some cases through the school of hard knocks, right? I wasn't, I, I was in my early career much quicker on the trigger. Um, you know, you learn that over time, usually by sending the email that backfires on you at some point. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you talk people through it. And then at some point, you also have to be willing to decide it's the wrong person. Um, and so it, it's this balance, especially in companies where you're growing really quickly or you need to transform very radically. Um, you've got to bring people along, but you also need to be willing to cut and run when when they're not the, again, right person, right role, right time, right attitude. Um, you know, you got to make quick people decisions as well. Here's another big thing I'm dying to talk to you about. Uh, you and I have been in some very, very real, very bad situations yeah. in business. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's always worse, yeah. but we've been in a couple yeah. of foxholes together where it was really, really, really bad. Yeah. And where many other people around us melted. Yeah. Now, many people at Mercury stood yeah. up. I, my, yeah. my assessment is there were plus or minus yeah. 150 to 200 people, senior people when the shit hit the fan that did stand up, um, which is more than who didn't, but there were many who didn't. And in some cases we had board members who melted and we yeah. had some very, I, I don't want to say who, but I mean, one of the biggest guys in Silicon Valley melted yeah. like snow in July in front of my face yeah. when we got investigated by the SEC and all that yeah. stuff. So uh, I would say, A, not only were you one who stood up, you were one of a very small number of leaders who picked the company up and literally carried it on its back and got it across the line. I mean, without you, Mercury doesn't have the outcome. I, there's just no way. I just yeah. don't believe that no, it does. Thank you. Oh. Um, so that's point A. Point B, I'm just going to say what's true for me, Sue. Not only do you do that in the most horrible business situations you can imagine, and this may sound like a, a strange set of uh, words, but you do it with elegance and grace. Oh, oh that's so nice. Um, thank you for that. Um, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of things in my career. Um, you know, we, we, we were in the foxhole at Mercury, you know, we went through a, you know, a delisting and investigate an investigation that then resulted in a delisting, um, you know, immediately prior to Mercury, I was, um, in a company called critical path, you know, which we, we were the dot-com darling and in 2001, you know, right at the time of the crash, we missed a quarter um, and had a huge stock drop. Uh, and then we had an investigation that resulted in, you know, financial fraud and, you know, people going to jail. And I remember people who used to work at our company went to jail, yeah, yes, sat in a jail yes, cell exactly. for, for quite some time. Yes. And um, I remember I remember being I, and at this time I was running marketing. I remember being at sales kickoff 
Um, so this was pre-Mercury. It was critical path. I remember being at sales kickoff with our whole you know, leadership team, and we were all waking up the next morning in order to go on stage, sales leaders, me, and um, essentially the FBI came, confiscated laptops, and nobody in the sales leadership team was allowed on stage. Um, because we were all, well, they were all under investigation. Yeah. So um, at 10 o'clock at night, I essentially realized we got the entire sales team here um, and I'm going to be on stage. <laughs> so Explaining you did, everything. Yeah, yeah. So, you, <laughs> you know, you basically, um, you know, you just, you figure it out and you, you lead, you lead through it. And um, so when we, when we got into the situation at at Mercury, it wasn't it was it wasn't my first crisis. Um, I went on certainly you know my in my decade at HP, I, I had you know we had many crises, and um, you just get to the point where you you know you just look around and you say look I, you know I've seen worse right I, I've seen worse and you know at some point in my career it became true I really had seen worse. Nothing and, scares you yeah, now, right? If you're you. scared, we are in yeah, trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, you just, you just lead through it and you just focus on it. You know, at some point, everybody makes their own decisions about, you know, when to opt out, when it's time to leave. But, you know, when you go through these cycles and you don't really know what's going to come out on the other end, right? Is the, is the company going to survive? Is the you know company going to be bought? you know, what's going to happen here. And what I used to tell people is, look, it will kill you to come in every day and worry about it. So pick your time period. I, I, I used to pick six months and I would say for six months, I'm in and I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to fight through this crisis. And in six months, and I would put it on my calendar in six months, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to spend that day assessing whether I'm in for another six months or whether it's time to go. Yeah. But I'm not going to wake up every day and second guess, what are we doing? What am I doing? So you won't do that. Make yourself crazy. No, you'll don't forget make yourself the crazy. You'll make the decision six yeah. months. I'm not going to think about it. I'm and focused. Then- I'm committed. I'm 150% in. Um and in six months, I'm going to have a conversation with myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes people chose three, but you you have to do that when you're going through a crisis because you will make yourself crazy trying to help the company navigate through the crisis and trying to deal with the, your own voice in your head every day if you don't. Mm-hmm. Now, I also want to talk to you about um, you are somebody that I always describe to people as a 360 degree person in that you are everything we've been talking about in business, but I of course know you well personally. You're married to an extraordinary man. And from what I can tell you and Bill have a magical relationship. Mm -hmm. He's couldn't be a more wonderful guy, warm, affable, clearly smart, handsome as shit. (laughs) Uh, had his own so. great career, yeah. of course. And uh, as a couple, you seem like an amazing couple. And then you decided to make people. Yeah, two people. And you have these two gorgeous, mm. smart, 
I mean, it's ridiculous, these two girls (laughs) that you've created. And so if you say, well, uh, some people say making successful people is the toughest thing that people can do. I, I don't know. I'm not a dad. But anyway, my point is, I just look at this and go, what? Okay, so you're literally the most effective executive I've ever seen. I know you have a great relationship with Bill. I know he's a wonderful guy. You are very, very special together. It's very obvious the first time people see the two of you together. And then your girls, you know, I've known them since they were teeny weeny. No, you have. (laughs) I remember you told me this funny story. I forget, I forget which, whether it was Nina or Sophie, but one of them at one point said something about my language about like, does Christopher spend a lot of time around children or something? I don't <laughs> know if you Nina remember. When was she it was ten. Yeah, she's like, he's totally inappropriate, isn't he? And she was ten years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so tell me about like how, yeah. how do you be this three hundred and sixty wow. degree person? And and your daughters are yeah. magical, and and well, you and Bill have this life, and you're. I mean, what the fuck, Sue Barsamian? <laughs> well, you know, look, I um I married incredibly well. Um, I have an amazing husband and, um, you know, I think, I think there's a certain amount of luck in that when you're young and how old were you when you guys met? Um, well, 25, I was 25 when we met, maybe 25, 26, we got married when I was 27, which seems young these days, Mm -hmm. but, um, he's just amazing. Uh, he's just, he's an incredible. You know, he's a super smart guy. He's really caring. He's incredibly grounded. Um, he had a great career, and at some point, you know, was so confident in himself that when my career got to the point where I was on the road a lot, and we decided that we didn't want to outsource, you know, the girls, um, you know, he really took primary primary parenting. And and he know. had a very big career yeah, as a big executive. It's not and like you married this yeah. guy who's like, yeah, you no. know, a really sweet guy, but sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. didn't really have many options and was drinking beer at home anyway and turned yeah. into a great stay-at-home dad. That's not Bill, no. right? No, he's, uh, no, but, he's, but a, he, he's amazing. He took on that role yeah. so that you could jam the yeah. accelerator in your yeah. career. I, I saw him do it. Yeah. I saw it happen in your relationship. Yeah. And it, you know, it, um, so I could never have done it without, you know, I could have done the first 15 to 20 years, you know, and we were both, we were both working, but, you know, all of our friends were dual working households. So that was just the norm in the Valley. You see that a lot. Um, but I couldn't have done the last 10 to 15 without, without him doing what he did. And, you know, he didn't stop completely. He went consulting and had a, had his own company and he, but he had a lot more flexibility with his clients. Um, and he's just, he, he was, and, and then continued to be an amazing dad, but then became kind of dad and mom in, you know, on many Mm -hmm. days because I wasn't there. Um, and you know, it, it just worked out, it worked out amazingly well. And, you know, now I have, I have time and, you know, I have to like learn to cook <laughs> all those things that I, you know, I didn't have to do. You need to spend more time here because there's, a, there's a cook that lives here that, could, that could really amazing. do some things for, yeah. with you. So he's, um, you know, he's just a huge part of the equation. And so how do you navigate that? 
you know, you hear so much today and lean in and, you know, all that stuff. And, and the reality is making people and raising people is really, really hard. Yeah. And, and you set a huge high bar for yourselves as parents. How, how do you guys as a couple make the decision? Hey, um, Sue's career just is, is really heading into a whole other gear yeah. and he's going to stay home and be, you know, take a different career, yeah. go solo, become a consultant and be the primary guy around the house while you're on a plane to, uh, to Tel Aviv. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, um, so we, we did role reversal several times times, right? So there were times when, um, you know, he would be doing an interim CEO job and I would be doing consulting. So, mm -hmm. you know, there we, we, we would trade off. So for the first, yeah, for the first, you know, 15 to 20 years, we would trade, you know, either we were both in jobs where you could load balance it or if one of us was, you know, needed to be really heavy, then the other one would step forward. And then, you know, at, at some point, we just made the conscious decision that, um, and for me, it was about one particular big role, but then that role, you know, that one, one big role begets another big role. And, and as the roles get bigger these days, you know, it's, it's really, it's the, the travel that goes along with it. But it's also the, you know, even if I was in town, I was at a dinner every night. Uh, you know, we, uh, we had customers in town. You were, you know, you were meeting with a colleague that you needed to really dig into something with. And the only time you each had was dinner. And so, and the you know, next morning there's a breakfast meeting with somebody yeah, you're trying to I mean, hire. You know, and yeah, even if, if you're even if you're here, you're not during the week. And so um, you know, we just we it was a conscious discussion and decision and you know, he was phenomenal about it and yeah, I'm lucky. Well and yeah, you're you're yeah. you're amazing. Oh, I, I don't know how you're a three hundred I don't know how you're that oh. in your executive life and you're that as a wife oh, and as a friend and, uh, and clearly as a mother. And um, anyway, it, very uh, blessed. I, I'm blown away by you. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap my love? Thank you. I am so honored to be on the podcast. Finally, it's just great. But you know that um, you're the person I wanted to have on the most from the minute I made this decision. Well, it's, I'm so glad we finally made it happen. And <laughs> I, I just, from the bottom of my heart, Sue, I want you to know, you make me a better human being. Likewise. And I love you with everything I am. Right back at you, my dear. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. <laughs> there she is. The incredible, the legendary. There are not enough words for me, laudatory words for me to describe the depth of the respect and admiration I have for the legendary Sue Barsamian. And I've been dying to have that conversation and share that conversation with you ever since we started um, this podcast. Now, our, our founding sponsor, as you know, is NetSuite. And the reason for that, you know, we didn't want to have a founding sponsor who was for, you know, left-handed hedge climber, clip climbers. I don't know what a hedge climber is. Maybe that's a new category, hedge clippers. <laughs> you know, we only want to be associated with companies that we think are aligned with our mission of helping to inspire you to follow your different and design a legendary business and a legendary life. And that's what NetSuite is all about. 
So if you're a, uh, a growth-oriented company and you're not in the cloud, it's, it's time. I would, I would even assert it's past time to move to the cloud. And NetSuite is number one in cloud ERP, the platform for growth for, um, uh, for growth-oriented companies. And uh, they offer a complete business management platform that gives you real-time visibility into all areas of your business. Every company battles with challenges as they grow, particularly updating manual processes and replacing inefficient systems. You know, you end up having a spreadsheet kung fu on a lot of stuff, doing things in informal ways, and then trying to figure out how to get that into your accounting system, how to get that into your inventory system, your order system, et cetera. NetSuite puts it all together for you, replacing those inefficient systems and processes, allowing you to get a handle on the things that matter as you scale, like for example, your cash flow. With NetSuite, you can save time and money and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, order management, and even HR instantly right from your desk or on your phone. And NetSuite is surprisingly cost effective. It, is be, it, be, it will become your one source of truth for running your business. And as a listener to this podcast, NetSuite is offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. So go to netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different and set up your free one-hour growth review. All right. We would like to thank the amazing folks at onelifefullylived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. That's the number one life, fullylive.org. Uh, my second book with the incredible uh, Heather Clancy, the number one Amazon bestseller, Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different. Check it out on Amazon.com. Speaking of books, Andre Iguodala's new book is out and it's fantastic. It's called The Sixth Man. Check it out. I also want to tell you about the incredible folks at 1185design. Check out 1185design.com. There is a reason the most legendary entrepreneurs and companies walk through the front door of 1185. That's because they design the brands that matter in Silicon Valley. Check them out. Speaking of things that matter, if you're a growth-oriented person, check out growwire.com for stories of inspiration and innovation, growwire.com. And a podcast that I love, the Impact Entrepreneur Podcast by my buddy, Mike Flynn. He's coming up on an episode soon. He's got a new book out. He's fantastic. Check out his podcast, the Impact Entrepreneur Podcast. And another nonprofit I love, donorschoose.org. This is the nonprofit that helps you fund projects for teachers in schools that need it the most. This, this is the company that brings the public to public schools. They're incredible. Check out donorschoose.org. All right. This podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And uh, we love you for being here. Thank you so much. The other thing I want to tell you, we recently uh, have been doing our first ever um survey. If you want to uh, contribute your thinking and tell us what you think of this podcast, you can do that at lockhead.com slash survey. And I want you to know I'm blown away because approximately 80% of the people in the survey report that the way they heard about us is through a friend. So thank you so much for being a friend and for sharing this podcast. All right. This podcast is clearly produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Please teach legendary executive uh, behavior <laughs> and entrepreneurship. Uh, 
Uh, save water and shower with a friend. Don't forget to go for a walk in the woods. I love you, Candy Dandy. And I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Harvey Weinstein. Sorry, Harv. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. We're out of here. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Uh, stay legendary. And of course, until we're together again, follow your different. 